come worship this morning with us. We've been talking for the last several weeks about our church's mission and why we're here and how we're going to accomplish and kind of what is our strategy for accomplishing our mission. And we've been looking at the words of Jesus and he looked out at the Sea of Galilee and he saw several fishermen who were living life according to their own thoughts and pursuing their careers and their families and just living life on their own. And Jesus looked to them and he said, follow me. He simply said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. That changed everything. That changed their lives and it changed the course of human history for Christ would then use those very men to take the mission he just gave to them, and it would go all over the world. And 2,000 years later, we'd be sitting in a zoo in Abahia in Abu Dhabi from people from every tribe and nation and tongue that all began with Jesus calling out to 12 men to follow him. And he is calling you and me as well. The call of follow me was not simply to those 12 disciples in the first century. The call, follow me, is the same call that you and I have received from the Master. And he's calling out to you this morning, saying, will you be my disciple? Will you follow me and carry this mission that I came to accomplish, given to Jesus by the Father, then given to us, those who are following him, for the purpose of glorifying him? That's, that's why we're here. Everything that we do has exactly one purpose, to display the beauty, the majesty, the wisdom, the glory of a resurrected Savior and Master and Head, Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. That's exactly why we are here. And so there in your notes, you will see, summarized, why is ECC Off-Island here? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do in the world exactly? Well, it's simple. We are here to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That's why we're here. That is what we do. Everything that we do is for that purpose. And so we've been talking the last few weeks, and we'll continue to do so for a few more. On well, how are we going to do it? What exactly is our strategy? What is the means that we're going to use to accomplish that mission given to us by Christ? And there's three simple words that summarize how we do it, and it's growth, community, and influence. And it's circular because we need all three continually. Every one of us, individually and as a body, corporately, we need to live lives of growth, every day growing. Live a life of pursuing Christ, live a life of growing but not just reading the Bible and growing, that's critical. But that should lead to us having community. You can't do it alone. You, you need others to encourage you. That's why we have a church. And so you, you need to be growing, live a life of growing, live a life of community, and live a life of influence, where the gifts that God has given you, the abilities, the skills, your personality, everything that is who you are is to be used for the worship of God, for His glory, and so you use your influence to help accomplish the mission. And so we need to be doing all three individually and all three as a church every day. And if we do, then we'll be a church of irresistible influence. We will do so much the kingdom of God and we will experience his joy and his pleasure. And that's what it's about. That's, that's what it's about. 
Now, we're talking about growth last week and today. We'll talk about community in the weeks to come. But I do want to mention just one brief thing about influence. That is next month. We'll talk about that in detail. But as a church, we try to provide you opportunities to use your influence for Christ, to glorify him. One way is in the faith family, such as children's ministry, such as the care team. So there's so many ways, youth ministry, you name it. Another one is musicians. We have two, Ray and Andre, and that's all we got. Everyone else has left or moved away or they're just no longer with us. And so that's just the reality of it. And so if you have that gift, we want you to use it musically. We need your help if you have those talents. But it's not just in the faith family. We also want to serve have influence outside of the faith family. And so we have a local and also a global missions team. And so what we do is we have people that go out to labor camps several times a week even and share the gospel with the South Asians that God has brought here that need to hear the gospel. But we don't just do it locally. We're also going to do it globally. And so we have a missions partner called FAM, which stands for the For All Mankind Movement. If you've met people um, like Brent Adams or James or even back over here, we have Jared. They're all, they'll work with FAM, and they're one of our church ministry or their missions partners. And so you've noticed in your bullets in the last few weeks, there's a trip that's going to be taking place December the 8th through the 14th, and it's going to India. And we're going. We're going to go to carry the gospel and make disciples of people that live in India. So I'm going on the trip myself in December, and I would encourage you to consider it. Will you go with us? Will you go with me and the rest of the team as we go to India and as we go and make Jesus known to those that otherwise might not hear about him? And now if you're thinking, well, I don't have the resources. It is about 4,000 Durham which for some of you that's just not possible, but for others of you that is possible. And for others of you, maybe you can't go because of your schedule, but you have the resources, and someone else wants to go, but they can't. Maybe you can fund someone so that they can go. But this is important, that we are truly living out these three elements, these three components to accomplishing your mission, to our strategy of living life of growth, community, and influence. We're talking about growth today. We learned this last week, the three necessary ingredients. If you're going to grow, you have to have all three of these. If you have one or two, it won't happen. You need all three. They're in your notes. I put there, you have your equation. If you like math, this is very simple. This is not complex. It's not high-level math. This is not, you know, going to have logarithms. This is very simple. There's just three words in your notes. It's Grace plus truth plus time. And so grace, truth, and time. You need grace to grow. You need truth to grow. And it takes time. If you have all three, it equals growth. If you only have one or two, it won't happen. You need all three components, all three ingredients. And if you have them, you'll grow. Kind of like I mentioned in the past, if you want to bake cookies. Like, I wanted some cookies, and I wanted them baked. And so I went to the... Uh, Giant last night, it's not a very big store, and I was trying to find one of those packages, you know, those really easy ones that you can just add water, put in the oven, and you have cookies. It's like magic. Well, they didn't have any. All they had was cake. Now, not that I don't like, I like cake too, for the record. But I wanted cookies, and there weren't, there was, 
no package to make cookies. And so now we're going to have to do it from scratch. And so I said, Bonnie, forget it. No, no cookies. You know, this is not going to happen. Because if you do it from scratch, you have to have all the ingredients. You have to know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. So this is not, I'll just go buy a bag of you know, cookies or whatever. But you have to have the ingredients. You have to have the butter, and you have to have the water, and have the flour, and the milk, and the chips. And you have to have all the ingredients. And if you're missing one, it's not going to be a very good cookie. It's not going to taste good if you don't have sugar in it. It's not. You have to have all of the ingredients to have the finished product. If you want to grow and become a disciple who is developed, that reflects the glory and majesty of Christ, that has character, that reflects that of Jesus, if you want to be transformed, if you truly want to be everything that God wants you to be as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a mother, as a wife, everything that God wants from you, if you want that, you must grow. You must. And you need all three, grace, truth, and time in your life in order to grow. We've been looking at this out of John 17. And so as you turn, I'll remind you, looking for balance here. We need balance with all three of these ingredients in our lives every day. John 17, as you look for it, just to remind you, this is the last prayer recorded that Jesus prayed. He prayed to his father right before he'd be betrayed by Judas put on trial in this joke of a courtroom and then crucified the next morning. This is the last time he prayed. In John 17, verse 17, here's what Jesus prays. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Simple, brief sentence. Jesus is praying for his disciples. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. He says, praying that God will sanctify his disciples. So what does that word even mean? What does the word sanctify mean? Well, it simply means to make holy, to have set apart for special purposes. So that's what the word means, to make it holy. And so he is praying that his followers would be set apart for special purposes, to accomplish the very mission that he had given to them. Set apart, have character that's like his, to be holy. If you, in your life, have repented of your sins, and you've asked Jesus to save you, and you understand that he died on the cross in your place, and you've responded, as I said, with faith and repentance, and said, Jesus, I give you my life like we sang. It's so easy to sing. I give you my life. I live for you alone. But if with all of your heart, if you have really meant that, then you have been born again by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. This is not just some generic spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that God used in creation, that you read that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. This is the very same Spirit that was there at Pentecost that came down like flaming tongues and that indwelt the believers. This is the Spirit of Jesus. He, not it, He lives inside of you. Literally, the Spirit of God is inside of you. 
1 Corinthians 6 says that you are not your own. You were bought with the price. You're not your own. It's a glorified God in your body. Why? Because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He literally dwells inside of you. This is so critical. This should change everything. This should change everything about how we approach life and temptation. And when things happen to us, God is dwelling in us. And he makes you more holy. He sanctifies you. Now, Jesus describes this in detail in this very same conversation because John 13 through 17 is one unit. It was the same evening where Jesus washed their feet. They had the Passover meal. They sang hymns. Jesus, and they walked out in, into the garden, and he, he talked about the vine and abiding in him. Same evening. And now he's praying for them, and then he'd be betrayed. And so chapters 13 through 17 is one evening. It's just one conversation. And in the same evening, the same time, Jesus is describing in chapters 14 and in chapter 16 the Holy Spirit's role. And so on your own time, I encourage you to read John 14 and 16, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and his role in the life of those that are following him, his disciples. And so it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us, as he describes in the same section, and he makes you more like Jesus, quite simply. You think more like him. You will respond to others, even when they're mean to you, more like Jesus would. He sanctifies you through his spirit. And this helps us overcome temptations and, and lingering habits of perpetual sin. We all sin. Let's just make that very clear. And I'm the chief sinner. Trust me. I have a family that can vouch for that. They live with me. They, they know my flaws. So I am not describing perfection at all. Hear me. We're not talking about perfection. What we're talking about here is a holy direction. There's a big difference. You will be perfect. You will be glorified on that day where if you're alive, if we have that privilege, we will hear the trumpet sound and we will see Jesus come down for us, his bride. But if not, if we die first, and if our spirit is with Jesus, then your body that will be buried in the ground will have a rattling in the grave, and your very dead body will hear that same trumpet and will be resurrected and joined with your spirit, and you will live with Christ forever. And in that situation, in that day, when you are glorified, the completion of your salvation, then you will be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. You will have no more sin. You'll still be human. You'll still look kind of how you look. You'll still have probably your personality won't change. You'll still have your accent, likely. You will still be, you will still be a human. That's not going to change. You'll still be you, but it'll be a you that is glorified and perfect with no sin. And that awaits the believer. And so salvation has three phases. The first phase of salvation you can call being converted, being regenerated, being born again of the Spirit. So the first step is being born again. That's when you receive Christ. And in the end, step three is when you're glorified, when you're with Christ forever and you're holy. But in the middle, there's this thing called life. 
where you receive Christ, you're a new creature, you have the Holy Spirit, but we're not in heaven yet. We're not there yet. We're not perfect yet. So in between, there's this thing called the life of faith. And there is a word that describes this. It's called sanctification. And so you are regenerated. You're born again. You have to go through the process of sanctification. And then in the end, you'll be glorified. But sanctification is a process. It's not overnight. Sanctification uses praise that we be sanctified. It's a daily process of God through His Spirit making you more holy. Having a more holy direction in your life. He prays that we be sanctified. He prays that we would grow in our character, in our purity, in our thought life, in our service of others, and how we treat those that treat us badly as husbands and wives to grow, to be sanctified. See, there's two parts here. You have your part, and God has his part. What is your part in sanctification? What is your role in sanctification? The three ingredients, grace plus truth plus time. You need those three where you are submitting yourself. And we talked about this more last week. We talked about it more today. But you do your part by submitting, by yielding to, to God through his word, because it says here, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As we submit to his word, as we read his word. We talked about this last week. We talked about your personal growth last week. Okay, we talked about more of the public growth in these elements. But, but we read and we meditate and, and we pray and we submit to him. And when we do that, then God does his part. Through his spirit, he grows us from the inside out. We tend to change things from the outside in. We want to change our clothes, change our hair. Like Andre, come up playing today with no hair. It's gone. I like it. It's different. And so you, you can change your appearance. But the Spirit of God works from the inside out. He changes you. It's the Spirit's work as you yield to him. So verse 17 again, it says that your word is truth. God is truth. We talk about needing grace plus truth plus time. You need truth in your life. It's the only way. And then verse 18 through 19, Jesus keeps praying. And here's what he says. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they ultimately be sanctified in truth. All right, this is very interesting. This is, you have to notice what Jesus is saying here. Chapter 17, he's praying for what? That we be sanctified, that we would grow, right? Be more like Jesus. Verse 19, he prays what? That they be sanctified. So verse 17, he prays that we be sanctified. Verse 19, he prays that we be sanctified, that we would grow. He sandwiches that. What's verse 18? That he has sent us into the world. That, my friends, is influence. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks. But look, he says you grow, and that leads to influence, and that leads to more growth. It is interconnected. That's why I have it kind of as the circular image with growth, 
community influence. They're interconnected. Jesus says, you grow, and then that leads you to go and make disciples, and then that leads to more growth. So you have community, or here you have specifically growth and influence, interconnected. Indeed, the Christian life is holistic with these three elements, and we need to balance all three every day. But verse, verse 19 specifically, because we'll look at verse 18 later in influence. But verse 19 says, for their sake, for our sake, for believers' sake, Jesus says, I consecrate myself. Why? So that they also may be sanctified. You're like, well, what does that word consecrate even mean? Now, it's a big churchy word. It's a theological word. And we've all probably heard it before, but what does the word consecrate actually mean? And how is it related to sanctify, which is in the same sentence? Jesus says, I consecrate myself so that they can be sanctified. Well, by the way, both words, consecrate and sanctify, mean to make holy. Both mean the same thing. But see, here's the nuance. The word sanctify refers to an individual, to a human being, to a person being made holy. And so when a person is made holy, that's sanctified. Consecrate, that was used for a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, you would see that, that the utensils had to be consecrated. You would see that the priest had to consecrate himself for the sacrifice. And then the actual animal that was being offered as a sacrifice needed to be consecrated, made holy. And so the word consecrate means to make holy, but it refers to the context of sacrifices in the Old Testament. So why does Jesus say that he must be consecrated the night before he'd be crucified? He was saying something. He's revealing the plan. The plan of God the Father, which is that Jesus must die as a holy and spotless lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the perfect, holy, consecrated sacrifice who died for you and for me in our place so that we could then be sanctified so that we could then receive the Holy Spirit, so that we could experience intimacy with God, so that we could experience eternity with him in heaven, because without holiness, you cannot see God. The only way that we could be made holy, receive his spirit, be made right, be justified before God, is that Jesus was the consecrated sacrifice. You can't do this alone. You need Jesus to do it for you. We simply respond to him. But as we live out this faith of being sanctified, you can't do it alone. You need other people in your life. Verses 21 and 22, same paragraph. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, 
that they may also be one, even as we are one. Now, we're going to spend much more time, yes, a lot more time on this in a few weeks when we talk about community. We'll expand on this, and we'll spend more time digging deeper into that. But for today, it's important that we understand what he's revealing here. He says that we all be one, just like Jesus and the Father are one. Are, is God the Father, God the Son at odds? No, that perfect harmony. And so he wants that for us, that we be one and that we display his glory. And so what we see here briefly is community, that we need others. We need to live this life of faith, of being sanctified in community, that we be one just as God the Father and God the Son are one. You can't grow by yourself. Growth is kind of like a coin. A coin has two sides. There's a personal and there's a public. And so for you to grow, it's individual. You pray, you meditate, you pursue Christ individually, but it can't just be that one. The other side of the coin is that you also need community. You need both, both sides of the coin. Growth is public and private. You, you can't do just one or the other. It's kind of like a relationship, guys, if, if you're dating or if you're married. If you say to your wife, I'm going to talk to you in private, but I will never talk to you in public, and I will never spend time with you with anyone else. Only a private relationship. How's your wife going to feel about that? She's not going to like it. It's not going to help. You need both. You need times. It's just you and your wife, and you're quiet and intimate, and you're connecting two of you, but you also need other people in your life to encourage you in your marriage, in your life. You, you need other influences. And so you need the pride. We talked about that last week. This is the personal. We talked about you and Jesus intimately and how you do that and you meditate and you pray, but you also need the public. You need community. So let's, let's just spend a little bit of time this morning and talking about this growth, Okay on being intentional, not trying to be like Jesus. We talked about that last week. Don't try, because what happens if you try to be like Jesus? Remember from last week? You will fail. We said, stop trying. Don't even try to be like Jesus. You can't do it, but you can train to be like Jesus. You can do those things that will put you in the position that you can be trained, and you can have your soul be more connected to his, and then what happens is you will grow. We talked about running a marathon last week. Well, you can't run a marathon unless you train. It takes time to train, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. Same thing with faith. So let's talk about how you apply the principles of grace, truth, and time in community. How does this work with other people? Because you need both. And so here's the key when it comes to community, just so you know this. The point of growth through community is that there are things that are provided that you cannot do for yourself. Does that make sense? You can't do it for yourself. There are certain things that you can't do. Just like I've had this crazy congestion in my chest for the last month, and I cough, and I'm just tired of it, and I'll do my breathing treatments, and then my wife, who loves me, will beat on my back. She'll just be hitting my back, 
And then it, it, it loosens it up, and I'm coughing. You're like, oh, yeah, that's lovely. That's awesome. But I can't hit myself on the back to break up, you know, stuff down in my lungs. I need someone else to beat my back. I need someone else to help me. I can't do it for myself. I need someone else to do that for me, to do that which I can't do for myself. But I have to endure being on the floor and her beating on me. But it's good because she loves me. Someone else helping you do what you can't do. And so you have there in your notes the, the three points, the three truths on community and growing. Number one there, it says love and acceptance. Love and acceptance. Now, if we're just really honest, if we're just going to keep it real with us just here on a Friday morning, living in Abu Dhabi as an expat is not always easy, right? Sometimes you wonder if you're really loved. Sometimes you wonder if you're really accepted. And we're reminded almost daily that this is not our country. There's no doubt that this is not our country. The laws and, and the perks for those that are local are significant. And it's like every day I'm being reminded, hey, Matthew, this is not your home. This is not your home country. You're a guest. Constantly reminded. But what can happen in an environment that sometimes is not always very conducive to us feeling loved and accepted by the society at large is not only that, but it's fast, and it's busy, and it's hard. And so what happens is you can get really dry. You can get really dry on the inside. And then, and then you can really wonder, does anyone really love me? Am I really accepted? Do I really belong? And then add personal troubles that, that could easily come your way, or financial troubles, or family troubles, or just personal struggles with trying to follow Christ and be pure and all of these things going on. And life can sometimes be difficult or unkind. And then throw in having children or bills. And it's like, ah, this is hard. Can we relate to this? Or is it just me up here participating in my life? Surely you can. And some of you in this room right now, this morning, maybe even driving church this morning, you were wondering, does God really love me? Does God really accept me with what I've done or what's been done to me? Is there really any hope for me? Am I really valuable or useful to God? Can God ever use me? Or have I just messed up so bad that I'm, I'm just going to church just just going through the motions, I'll just go, but quite honestly, there's no impact on the inside. And you're wondering, am I really loved and accepted? And I have news for you. I had the privilege of being the one this morning to tell you that the answer is yes. Yes, God loves you. Absolutely, God loves you. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up, how low you feel, what has been done to you, how hard it is. God loves you. When he looks at you, he's not seeing you as a sum of all of your mistakes and flaws. That's how we see ourselves. 
We see ourselves in the mirror and we see a sum total of my shortcomings. But God sees me and he sees his son whom he created, whom he has set his affections upon, whom he sent his son to die for me. And I am someone, and believe this or not, but it's true for you too, we are people that were worth dying for. You are worth it. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he had to. Because of the joy set before him to glorify the Father so that people that are fighting and squabbling and sinners and struggling like you and me, we can then say Jesus is Lord by the power of his Spirit, and then we go forth and make and develop disciples, and who gets the glory? Not us. God does. Jesus is glorified. That's what I'm talking about when I put in your notes the love and acceptance. There's a word for this, unearned favor, unmerited favor, grace. You probably get it. The next to your blank are going to be grace, truth, and time. Grace. God has shown you grace that you don't deserve, you could never earn, but he has shown you and lavished grace upon you. And then we go to our community. We go to our friends, our coworkers, our home group. And guess what happens? Someone makes us mad. Or someone doesn't do it right. Or what we want in church isn't exactly happening how we want it. And you'd rather hear different kinds of messages than what we're preaching right now. Or whatever, you name it, and you're frustrated. But see, here's what you have to remember. God has shown grace to you, and so therefore you show grace to others. God has been so gracious to you, you then are compelled by the glory of Christ to show grace to others. Just let people be who they are. We're different. That's okay. Now, if there's a problem and in love we can go and lovingly help them to improve, of course we do that. We'll talk about that more in community, talking about accountability a little bit today too. But my point is we've been shown grace. We show grace to others. And so when you have someone in your life that just drives you crazy, whether it's a boss or maybe someone that shares your last name, I don't know. But when there's that person in your life that is just like sandpaper and they just rub you raw, ever felt that, that person? Don't point to them in the room. That person is the person that you need to have grace with. You need to be patient and love that person because God has been patient and loved you. And you need to start to see those people as opportunities for your sanctification to progress. God has brought that annoying person, that difficult job, that bad situation, the hard finances, whatever it is, God has allowed that so that your sanctification may progress, so that you will be made more like Jesus. 
And so when we have community, we're put in that position where we have to. I had my son a couple weeks ago when his little sister got into a fight, and he got hurt. It's funny. He's a boy, and he got hurt. But she's, she's like her mom. She's tough. She's, she's a very strong, real strong little girl. And I sat down, and, and they were both wrestling. So they, I didn't spank them because they both were wrong. And so I, just, I talked and said, look, here's the bottom line. If you didn't have a sister, guess what? You would never get into a fight. You, you would never once be hurt. She would never accidentally bump into you. She would never take your toys. She would never eat the last bowl of cereal that you wanted, whatever it is. You wouldn't have any problems with anyone. And I said, and by the way, when you're a man and you're on your own, if you want to live alone, go ahead. Never call me. I can't make you call me when you're a man, Josh. And besides that, if you want to not go to church and not have friends and not get married and live alone and be self-employed, working in your basement on just the Internet and never see any human being, you can do that. And you will never have any problems with people. He said, but then I'll be alone. I was like, exactly. You want to be alone? No problems with people. You want to have people in your life? Guess what's going to happen? You're going to get hurt. Learn this now at eight, son. Learn it. Learn it now. Because I'm preparing you. I told him this. I'm preparing you for adulthood. Because if you want community as God has called you to have, you, listen, you will get hurt. I didn't say you might will. And that's good. Because you're doing it God's way. You're pursuing community. And it's a chance to grow. To be more sanctified. And it puts us in that position to show grace. Because grace has been shown to us. And you know what happens? The closer you get to other people and, and you feel their grace, and you feel they love you. And yes, sometimes you get crossways, but as a whole, you have these amazing relationships, and you're tied with other people, and you, you know they accept you. There's this tight-knit bond with other people. You're doing life together. You're in the same home group. You're serving together, whatever it may be. And you grow close, and you know they love you. You know they accept you. For all of your flaws, they still love you. They accept you. You will open up. You will reveal yourself to them. A lot of people in this room, I guarantee you, you're an island. You're alone. You haven't opened up to anyone. It's not healthy. You have to show grace. And let them show grace to you. Humble ourselves. Love and acceptance. God does it for us. We do it for others. Number two, God's holy standard. What's that blank? Truth. We're just following the three ingredients, grace, truth. We read in the scriptures here that God's word is truth. Jesus is truth. And so we need truth. And so that is God's holy standard. When I say standard, I'm talking about the way that we measure right and wrong. What is your measurement for morality? How do you know how to live? Well, God's word, his truth. The Bible doesn't just contain Truth, it is truth. 
Jesus doesn't say, Father, and your word has truth. It says your word is truth. And so we need truth in our lives. But we need it spoken to us through other people. We need accountability. You won't grow unless there are people in your life that get in your grill and say, how are you? And then you say, oh, I'm fine. And they say, liar. You're clearly not fine because I know you. I know your personality. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. We're so tight as brothers that I know you're lying to me. And so what is going on? If you don't have that, you won't grow. You won't grow. James 5.16 says that we need to confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. So the brother of Jesus, James, tells us to confess our sins to one another. Not because we're priests in that sense, like a Catholic that will pardon sins. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible says that when we confess in this relationship, we're healed of that sin that plagues us. You need accountability. Do you have people in your life that can speak truth to you? And serious. Do you have people in your life that you can be real with, that know you, that will confront you because they love you? If you don't have those kinds of friendships, then my suspicion is that you have some walls that you put up around you to keep others away from hurting you. The problem is those same walls that you have built that keep people from hurting you are the same walls that keep spiritual growth from happening in your life. You won't grow if you have those walls up. You won't. It goes against God's word. It violates his plan. You need people to speak truth Remind you of God's standards. Because we live in a world that's going to tear away and, and chip and nag at us and just erode away at our soul. And we need others to help build us up and remind us of truth. We need it. But the third one is community for every season of life. What is this in your blank? Time. It takes time. Spiritual growth, you have to have grace from God and from others. You have to have truth in your life from God's word and also spoken from others. You need grace, you need truth in your life, and it takes time. Through every season of life, there are going to be seasons that are really joyous. And those people, guess what they'll do? They'll celebrate with you. They'll enjoy life with you. But your life at times will just knock you down. And when you're knocked down, who do you have to help you up? Who in your life knows you well enough, you've opened up to, you're transparent with, you're tight with, that they're going to help pick you up and really be there for you? A lot of people, when life goes well, they'll go to church. But then the second that they get crossways with someone or life gets hard, guess what they do? They quit going to church. And I think, are you kidding me? That is the worst thing that you can do, is forsake your brothers and sisters. When it gets hard, is when you need people the most. But that's when we tend to run the quickest, because that's easier. 
for every season when it's hard. You need people. And to be intentional with this. I've had seasons when I was in seminary, I've shared in the past about my experience briefly, but I'll tell you this. Our marriage, <laughs> when, when I graduated with, with the master's from seminary, our marriage, if, if it was a race, a marathon, I crossed that finish line with, I don't know, a broken leg and just kind of just limping across the finish line. Our marriage was not healthy when I graduated back in 05. And so, man, how time flies, but I wasn't. I was in class all morning, in the library all afternoon. I was selling mobile phones all evening to make a living. I would get home at 9 to begin my homework, my reading, and my papers. Be in bed, I don't know, 1 o'clock, and get up a few hours later and do it again the next day, do it again the next day, do it again the next day. Saturday in the mall all day, working all day in the mall, trying to sell phones to pay our bills. She was home with the little baby, and I never saw my wife. So I can relate to many of you that have long hours, that work long hours. It's hard on your marriage. Our marriage really suffered during seminary, a time where you would think it would be rich and preparing for ministry and learning, and it was that, and God was with us, and he was good to us, and it, I learned so much, but our marriage really suffered, and I'm telling you today, if it wasn't for people in my life that prayed for me, found out later who were fasting for me, and that were being accountable hold me accountable, and that were encouraging me and her, I would not be here today because I would not be married today. And I'm not even exaggerating. I'm not even kidding you. Like one night when Bond prepared this amazing meal, and I got home like four hours late. She had this meal sitting on the table around the holidays, and I got home literally at 11 o'clock instead of about 7 and I get home, and she is so angry at me. Yet the reason why she didn't leave me that night was because a friend that had come over and sat with her and said, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. It won't always be like this. Matthew's a good man. I'm glad she believed him or believed her. And she didn't leave me. But if we didn't have those friends, I'm telling you, we wouldn't have made it through seminary. There are so many that go and get divorced in seminary. It's crazy, but it's true. If you don't have people in your life for those hard seasons, you won't grow. You won't. You need others. People to ask you the hard questions. Who asks you the hard questions in your life? The questions that you hope no one asks you. Who asks those questions of you? If you don't have that, you won't grow. You need community. And so what are the ingredients to grow? You need grace, plus you need truth in your life, and it takes time. And if you have all those ingredients, then I promise you you'll grow, but you must do it personally and in community. That's so why we have home groups. We'll talk about home groups more in the next few weeks. We'll talk about this more in depth. But for today, be aware of that. Home groups can be a great way. And if you don't know how to join one, go to the back table and we'll sign you up. This morning, as a faith family, we have an opportunity to really experience something deeply spiritual that's communal together. It's called communion. 
There's a reason why it's called communion, because we do it as a community. We do this together. Together this morning, we're going to observe communion. We're, we're going to be reminded of what Jesus says in John 17. And so I'm going to ask the men that are going to serve the elements to please come to the front. And, and as they do, I remind you that Jesus talked about being consecrated, that he would be the sacrifice that would be holy, who would die for us. He died on the cross for us. Now remember on this same night, that Jesus celebrated the Passover. So on the same night that he celebrated Passover, he instituted communion for his followers. Is it a coincidence that he implemented communion on the same night where he'd be betrayed and he'd be sacrificed the next morning at Passover? Not a coincidence. The first Passover, what you had when the Israelites were living in Egypt as slaves, God commanded that a spotless lamb would be killed. That that lamb would die in the place of that family, and the firstborn would not have to die. And they would take the blood of that lamb who was sacrificed, and they smeared it across the doorframe. So that night, when God came in to defeat his enemies, he came in to show that he is holy and there must be a sacrifice for sin. The people that had the blood over their doorframe were spared because the lamb was the sacrifice that died in the place of that household. That lamb paid the price for that family. This was a foreshadowing. Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God. He is that spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died the next morning after he preached or prayed this rather. And he was that spotless lamb. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And the Israelites that were enslaved in, in Egypt then had the exodus. And they, they left. They were redeemed. They were liberated from slavery because of the Passover. Jesus has liberated you and me. We have the ultimate exodus from our sin, our slavery to sin. We're liberated from our slavery because of the Passover lamb. So now this morning, when we take of the Lord's table, the elements of the bread and the wine, when we eat of the bread, we're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. He died on the cross for you and for me. And that bread is a reminder. And we look back. We remember back to when he died, but we also look forward. This is a symbol. It's a sign that points back to work on the cross as our sacrifice. And we look forward to when he comes back for his bride. And we will enjoy the consummation we will enjoy intimacy forever with Jesus. We will enjoy him as his bride forever. And we will feast of the wedding banquet together. And we'll enjoy him and we'll enjoy each other with no more sin forever. And so this simple reminder, it's not so simple. We look back.